0: Hello and welcome back to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Jamie Cameron, Managing Editor here at the magazine, and I'm joined by Katie Tobin, our Editorial and Marketing Assistant. Katie, hello, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very good, despite the political turmoil of the country. All is good in our office.
0: <laughs> Lovely to hear it. Today we are delighted to be joined by perhaps one of the most frequent contributors to the London magazine in all of its 300-odd years of history, particularly, I would say, the current iteration of the magazine. That man is our resident cartoonist, uh, academic in the history and practice of satire. And he is Dan Sperrin. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you?
2: Hello, nice to see you. Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to start off the show with a quote to hopefully set us up, set some context and give us a platform for this conversation around satire and, and cartooning. So the cartoonist, and I hope I don't butcher his name, Martin Rosen, is it? Or Martin Rosen? Rosen. yeah. Martin Rosen said, satire is a survival mechanism to stop us all going mad at the horror and injustice of it all <laughs> by inducing us to laugh instead of weep. But beneath the veil of humour, there's always a deep, disturbing darkness. So Dan, to to start things off, do you agree with that? Is satire a survival mechanism? Do you think it veils uh, a deep darkness in our nature?
2: Well, I think that's, you know, it's quite a good place to start, isn't it? Because the satirist is mainly offering an interpretation of power you know, that's what satires are, they interpret power for other people. And Martin's very good at saying that the origins of satire line are sort of primordial, unevolved, reptilian brain. And that actually, uh, you know, these two things seem to be at odds with one another. The bit of us that's reptilian and the bit of us that's sort of overtly civilised and trying to interpret power for other people. And he sees them as coming together, I think. I think that's probably a fair summary of what he believes. So I actually do agree with that. I think that there are elements of satire which are very kind of brutal and dark and horrifying. I mean, in full agreement with Martin. I mean, Martin says that, you know, I've heard him give talks about this before, he says that the origins of satire and cartooning are really on sort of cave paintings, you know, people Mm. drawing, you know, kind of lurid, surreal, exaggerated versions of their their enemies once upon a time on on the wall.
0: (laughs) Mm. So you are trying to make, when you're doing a cartoon, go into a specific specific part of that quote as well. You're trying to induce people to laugh rather than weep. Is that like a conscious thing in there too as well.
2: I think so. I mean, I think satire has quite an uneasy relationship with humour a lot of the time. I mean, I think some cartoons, particularly some of Martin's, are actually quite disturbing. I think a lot of people find cartoons quite horrifying sometimes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, sometimes they can also be funny. Some cartoons, some cartoonists, sorry, are usually doing sort of gag cartoons, aren't they? Sort of Christmas cracker jokes with an illustration sometimes. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you look at the cartoons in The New Yorker at the moment. I mean, they're just little kind of panels essentially. They're mm-hmm. little jokes. Whereas somebody like Martin, I mean, I think that the the element of humour in his stuff is obviously... It's quite prominent. It is there all the time, but it's not the only thing that he's doing. So I think he's right to say that a lot of satirists are trying to make people laugh, but I think often they're getting them to reflect on their on the on the sort of conditions of the society around them, actually. It's not just mm. about making them laugh.
0: So then to to zoom out and to go from kind of a quite particular quote to the work of a political cartoonist at large. If you were to describe it to a layman how would you say this is you know this is what I do this is my job this is why I do it there you go someone an alien has landed on planet earth and said oh, what's what's all this business of him
2: you mean the visual stuff the cartoons well
0: every every how would you kind of encapsulate every aspect of, of the practice into, you know...
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, I, in a way it goes back to what I said at the beginning I think a lot of what cartooning is about is about interpreting power for other people. I think essentially... What, what do you mean by interpreting power? Well, I think understanding how power is articulated, who holds authority in public office particularly but obviously elsewhere, and what the effects are on life for people who do not hold these positions of authority. I think there's I think that's an element of what the cartoonist is trying to do. I mean, I, do, I you know, the, what I would say to the alien is that we're essentially <laughs> (laughs) engage in a contemplative reflective process really and the the sort of visual expression of it is designed to take a line on a particular series of decisions or events or or um or political behaviors
1: so you've got a you've got a background in in terms of actually researching satire and and especially swift and i'd love to talk a little bit about how that kind of informs elements of your practice and, and what you do yourself
2: I think that so my PhD was on Swift and now I'm writing this big long history of satire and I think that taking the long view of it all the way from the ancient world right up to now does give you a sense of the many different things that people have believed satire can do in other words it is not one thing that is always doing the same thing every time it's done lots of different people think they're doing satire for lots of different reasons so mm-hmm. I think that the I think that sort of studying it in that way has definitely shown me that Um, there are not only there many ways of doing it there are many definitions of what constitutes satire in the first place and different societies want different things from it I mean insofar as it's a kind of aggressive but also reactive literature you know it's reacting to different political conditions circumstances and people so I think that's been really helpful just seeing just the sort of I don't know the sort of vastness of the subject really from beginning to end that's what it's done for me I
1: think. Yeah, I have really strong memories of GCSE and A level history and looking at all those punch <laughs> comics. Yeah. Which I'm sure is like a cool memory for most of us who who've done it.
0: I would say that's probably the first time most people are exposed to satirical cartoons is through, you know, history GCSE or whatever. Here is an <laughs> artifact. or here's like a exhibit A of a cartoon about Hitler describe its, kind of, <laughs> it. yeah, its political message or whatever the question might be is that how were you first exposed to it in that way as well
2: I think it probably was I mean you know if it's a question about where I you know my first instinct for cartooning mm. sort of you know emerged I mean I think as a kid I was always looking at someone called Gerald Scarf. is that a name to you uh, so Scarf Scarf was the cartoonist who contributed to the first copies of Private Eye oh okay and he was famous actually for a lot of artwork that wasn't satirical so he illustrated Pink Floyd's The Wall oh um, wow and he also did that Disney film Hercules <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I what, grew what a up, body of work. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I grew up looking at lots of um, lots of scarf. So my first exposure was really through that stuff. Um, and then obviously by the time you get to school and you're being told about, you know, the great dictators of the 20th century, mm. suddenly a, a David Lowe cartoon will emerge and you have mm. to say something about it. Yeah, I do remember that actually.
0: So the, the, this kind of, you know, is a, a nice setup for, for my next question, which is that, which came first? Was it the interest in drawing and cartoons then? Yeah. Before this interest in satire, you weren't kind of six years old thinking, oh, <laughs> I want to take Tony Blair down a peg. Or <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I was. Yeah, <laughs> um... uh,
2: I think it was about... Um, I think when I was young and I was drawing all the time, I used to draw a lot as a kid. I think it was about... Um, explaining the world to myself i mean i'm scarf says a similar thing i mean when i was a kid i was quite unwell actually i was very asthmatic as a child like scarf so this is why i have Mm. an interest in scarf because we have an element of biographical sort of overlap and i think that it was a way of explaining adult behavior to myself to be quite honest i think a lot of it was about explaining why these people behave in this particular way and what their motivations are and you know I, i drew it in quite exaggerated and surreal and um uh yeah strange terms just like scarf so i think that's probably you know i mean not to turn this into a sort of glorified therapy session but i do think i do but, please, think, yeah. but i do <laughs> but i do think the early stuff was about explaining the world in terms that made sense to me and mm. feeling as though other people weren't explaining it in a way that made sense to me um elsewhere
0: is is that quite common you think is it cuz mm. i can't imagine there's not like a school for cartoonists, is there? That's like, it's, right. it's, it, You're all kind of self-taught, yes. I would presume. Yes, right? yes, yes. Yeah.
2: Although actually the great satirists of the 18th century all did training at the Royal Academy and all went on their grand tours around Europe and mm. so on and so forth. So they were often trained to a very high level. But it's true that a lot of modern cartoonists are self-taught and I think that it just comes from some... You know, going back to what Martin said at the beginning about sort of, I don't know, the, the sort of early instincts for satire where it comes from. I think a lot of it is about... Um, Yeah, reflecting the world back to yourself in ways that make sense because it's not being supplied elsewhere.
0: Mm.
1: I feel like that's the kind of core ethos behind a lot of memes, but less (laughs) less artistry involved in in a lot of those.
2: You say that, some memes are really good.
1: Any spring to mind? What's your favourite meme?
2: What's my favourite meme? I've got a lot of favourite memes.
0: It's the same thing in terms of, like, there's a visual language, which is what you expect, and then (laughs) the only way you can kind of operate or understand memes is through an awareness of what the grander meme, like signifies, right? And that kind of works in cartoons as well, right? Because, yeah. obviously, you know, the, the, the depictions of the great dictators or whoever are, mm. are comically exaggerated to the point that you kind of have to be in on the joke beforehand to really get the joke, right? Yeah, I
2: see what you mean. It's about a closed system of interpretation. Yeah. I think that my favourite meme match isn't political at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a little crustacean lobster thing being interviewed by someone on the news, and it says... <laughs> and the little crustacean is saying, you know, and then I said, that is not a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> like it realizes it's being boiled. Oh I see oh I see. Nice, oh, nice, no. nice, nice. Why why does that meme have any place in our society? I have no idea at
0: all. It must be telling us something about <laughs> ourselves, I guess, deep deep yeah,
2: down. Yeah.
1: Well well speaking of memes, I find it really telling <laughs> that the Liz Truss cabbage has kind of wormed its way into so much uh so many articles even recently, her trip to America. I think The Guardian said Liz Truss, who's uh, term as prime minister was outlasted by a cabbage <laughs> that kind of satire element comes through i think yeah. more so than ever when talking about politics these days
2: I think so. And I, I'm quite interested in the fact that, you know, people are using these memes to explain the political world to themselves, because obviously the, the meme is an incredibly kind of underdeveloped, you know, quite essentially quite immature form of political commentary. Mm. But it does serve a genuine purpose for people our age, doesn't it? And mm. I think the reason why is because it's not being supplied elsewhere, either through the legitimate channels of government or through journalism. I think people actually find that the memes make more sense to them, than what's going on in the, in, you know, in the public uh, discussion of it. So I find that simultaneously worrying and interesting.
0: You kind of set yourself up there in the sense that, you know, if these things aren't being served by journalists, what yeah. you do is a fundamental, is, is part of that ecosystem. Yes. Yes. So do you think that people are being failed then? And and you kind of see yourself as trying to, to counteract that. Do you feel that like your work has that moral purpose as well then?
2: I think from a young age, I've always felt as though the only people telling the truth in the newspaper was the cartoonist. <laughs> I've yeah. always thought that. And I still think that as well. I mean, a lot of journalists are taking a line that the that the newspaper has told them to take. Um, you know, a lot of them are being sent to go and report on some events, particularly on domestic parliament, which, are, you know, essentially the conclusion has been designed before they've even got there and they're just gathering information to justify it sometimes. And I find that the cartoonists are the ones that are engaged in serious reflection on what's actually going on and are trying to cut through to the core logic of events and people. And, you know, I think that's, in, you know, it's important because it's doing that. Well, I see it as a sort of sort of ecosystem within journalism that sort of, uh, I don't know it's it's sort of infiltrated the world of journalism somehow and it's <laughs> and it's existing within it
0: mm. to to kind of then make this conversation maybe more specific to the london magazine yeah um as our cartoonist i'm going to tell a quick anecdote that you might not be aware of first of all <laughs> right. which is that um, is this going to be terrible no wait, it's, it's actually really satisfying i think <laughs> earlier this year i think one of your cartoons featured a version of rishi sunak right right and let's just say somehow a copy of the london magazine made it into rishi sunak's hands and he didn't realize that if he'd opened the first page <laughs> he would see a, a cartoon that cannot be true that's 100 true that cannot be true. We, a, we i have... promise you it's true
1: have photo evidence that we met um, him
0: there's a photo of Rishi holding Looking the London at magazine one of my he didn't look at it though that's the thing so he was holding no, the no. copy of it he didn't if he'd bothered to open <laughs> it he would have seen that this magazine was designed to take the piss out of it. but he never did um, oh no that's
2: so annoying so I, He maybe, didn't but, see my cartoon i mean of him. maybe
0: he he opened it later i, I I'm, I'm not mm, sure but really? um, what i wanted to say, ask then like you know in your capacity as a london magazine cartoonist how do you, you what what's your process how does it work where do you go from kind of initial, or how do you go from an initial idea to sending me your work? How, you know, what are all the stages in between? Yeah. Um, yeah give us the lowdown there
2: well I'm co- sorry I'm slightly shaken by the story about how completely ineffective it all is that even if it enters Rishi Sunak's own hands <laughs> it makes no difference at all I mean that, that, you I'm could say that I'm slightly rocked by how <laughs> sad the story is he didn't the, see my cartoon of him
0: what about the alternate alternate history in which he did see it at a later <laughs> time and then perhaps when they lose the election next year the dent in his confidence that he took um, mm. from that cartoon is what going I reckon he was here. just putting
1: on a brave face for us and he probably knew what was inside that ticket at home had a little cry
0: maybe yeah. had a little cry <laughs> <laughs> but you're right though, that you get, to get wow. so close to him Shored to be able to see that. it and yeah, then not actually seeing it devastating
2: anyway. anyway fine you asked about the process yes. of how I actually construct these things so I mean obviously I mean to say I have a process would be so sort of self-aggrandizing I mean essentially I reply to your email saying where is it because um, I'm, I'm late and I've forgotten <laughs> uh, that's the process <laughs> I, I reply yeah. to you saying oh god I've forgotten and then I go and look at the newspaper and decide there's nothing to draw uh, and then I wait a bit longer and then you send another email saying we really want the cartoon now because it's coming to print <laughs> yeah. uh, and then i just sort of try i mean basically what i do is i just read what i try and do is i try and read as many different versions of the same event in lots of different newspapers so okay so you know there'll be some bloody disaster or scandal and i'll go and look at as many different ways you know i look at the ways in which it's been reported on and try and take a line on it myself now luckily Sorry, am I allowed to talk about the magazine in general terms? Oh, of course. Yeah, the yeah. best thing about the magazine is that it's never asked me to take a particular line on anything, mm. which is quite rare. I mean, a lot yeah. of cartoons obviously are working for these big newspapers where yeah. there is there is a certain... There's
0: a political ideology behind it. Yeah, them, right? there's like
2: an angle they want to take. So I'm quite lucky in as I can take kind of almost any line I want, essentially. Um, and then what I, I do mean, is... You, I just...
0: you never push it to the point of... Uh, no, no. Yeah, th- thankfully, yeah.
2: <laughs> no, no, don't, I haven't really pushed it too far, but yeah. I'd say that what I try and do is just try and work out what I really think is going on, what, you know, what are... Other the sort of assumptions here what is the argument coming from the person that i'm drawing uh you know why does it matter what's going on etc etc and try and just come up with a yeah, and it, as I said, an interpretation of power. That's what go back to what I said at the beginning. So I just try and d- take my own line of what I really think. I try and make sure that it will suit not just the magazine, but the people who are reading it. Although, of course, I didn't know that Sunak was in the audience. Though, I would have really thought about that a lot more
1: <laughs> I don't think he's a he's a regular subscriber, unfortunately.
2: And also, like all cartoonists, I say I'm sorry, I'm not apologetic at all. Yeah, I mean, in any way. Okay, so so the process has got to the point where I've decided what I'm going to do. I then draw it about ten times, all of which are completely terrible (laughs) all go in the bin uh, and then eventually i try very hard to come up with something uh, by some notional deadline which has probably been overshot by several days and then i send it to you it's a disaster every time
0: so the there's no pro- there is, there's no, there is process. no process. There's no process. But you're responding to a story that in so, on some level yeah. emotionally or politically that then it inspires the Absolutely. The exactly.
2: Yeah. It's all prompted by what's in the news, essentially. Mm. Now, obviously, with the London magazine, it's slightly different from a newspaper because it comes out quite a long time exactly. after I've drawn it. Yeah. Now, that that is actually really difficult. Mm. So trying to come up, in, in a way, that's always on my mind as well, trying to draw something that I think will be relevant in... I don't know how long it is actually three weeks maybe, it's sometimes? a bit less than that now but I think it's
0: that. for context for the listeners I think the London magazine goes to print about 10 days before the actual issue is released so you have to then yeah you probably send me the cartoon as you described on the day that we send it to the printers most of the time <laughs> and uh, Sorry about that. no no that's but that makes most sense as you say because if satire is you know a form that is reliant completely on being contemporary yes um, you have to almost predict what will be the story in two really. weeks is that is that basically yeah yeah, what happened?
2: yeah it's a really unusual it's a really unusual uh gig Mm. in that respect because i have to sort of get my crystal ball out and you know summon all my sort of predictive (laughs) powers to think what will be relevant or at least what what, you know what is an issue that's going on for long enough that people will be Mm. able to see you you know relate to it in say a month's time so the most recent one was obviously about david cameron who's just been brought back to the house of lords so he can be foreign secretary um and you know that is going to be relevant in 3 weeks time in the same sure. way that it was 3 weeks ago so mm. i tried to pick something that people could relate to in in, in a sort of chronological time warp
1: i think sure. everyone's just in a bit of disbelief about that so it'll have some resonance <laughs> for for quite a while
2: yeah mm. absolutely no i know, but it, but you're but you're right the chronological element is is a bit unusual in this
0: case so mm.
2: i'm a bit um that's on my mind while I'm drawing these things as well.
0: So in a, in a sense, maybe the kind of the sending it at the deadline is a subconscious response to like buying more time to, <laughs> to keep the relevance up.
2: Do you know, I have actually, that's actually not just subconscious, but quite conscious some of the time. I sometimes mm. think, well, the sooner, you know, because I've asked the magazine a few times, can I submit it really at the last minute, risking mm. the fact that I'm actually just naturally always late. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, I think it's because I'm trying very hard to keep some element of kind of immediate, immediate relevance. Mm. I'm trying to retain as much of that as possible, but it's not easy.
1: So what is it that, that draws you to graphics, cartoon, satire over other forms, over literature, um, obviously, which you work with, film, yep. comedy? What is it that you think it allows you to do that others others can't quite in the same way?
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of drawn sort of equally to... Sort of, you know, as many different kinds of satire as, as as exist, really. I mean, I I I don't see the distinction, if you see what I mean. So, I for me, there's no real difference between the visual satire and the literary stuff. I mean, it's all it's all essentially one thing. I think I'm personally drawn to it because I've always enjoyed the the, the sort of craft and artistry of it. I've just always enjoyed the sort of practical element. I mean, um, and I suppose from a young age, I really I really was drawn to things like Scarf and Hogarth and all the rest of it. So, I think for me, it was quite instinctive why I was you know because i think the question away is why am i not writing short stories that are satirical in my own light yeah even though i even though i'm writing a history of literary satire why am i a cartoonist i think mm. it's the question and i think it, it's just about um feeling as though i can speak more truthfully there than i can in 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 words or something you know so it's a, because of a of grand your...
0: way of putting it but i do think that because of your background or as in because of your interest in the like in literally drawing, yeah, and that's think, enable you're able to express yourself more fluently?
2: yes, absolutely mm. i just I just think from a young age, I felt as though that was the language in which I could express myself best in some cases, and you know I spoke to you earlier about explaining the world to myself through these images i mean mm. um i think I think that that was you know it was an early process I sort of developed for myself. It was a shock to me as I got older to find that other people did the same thing and that there was this whole sort of world of of cartoons. That mm. that was the big revelation of my young lives that other people did the same
1: thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's funny because London magazine in itself or a literary journal in itself is kind of a anachronistic entity. Yeah. And then cartoons within that uh uh you know, a classic form of satire that's existed for, however long you could tell me, thousands of years, or cave paintings, if you want to yeah, put it that Yeah, yeah, if you hate Martins, um, line, it's been
2: there since man was yeah. unevolved. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think, I mean, the standing of the cartoonist is, is clearly not as much as it, the, the same as it was in whatever yeah. the 19th century or whenever mm-hmm. the golden age the golden age might be, you, your 17th century is where Probably you're be the 18th research? century. 18th century, okay. Um, you know, does that bother you? Do you feel this sense of, am I on the cutting edge, you know? I know what you mean. I
2: think that the, in a way, the, the cartoonists have always been a tiny little group of people mm. contributing in a very unusual and very unique and very strange way to contemporary journalism. They all
0: seem to know each other as well, I realise, in they, my they, research. Well, well, they do. I mean, I don't know anyone. Oh. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I'm, in, I'm in a world of my own. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think essentially they've always been, you know, slightly, it, it, There's been there's an element of the outsider in the cartoonist, I think. Mm. So you know, they've contributed to journalism, as you say, since the 18th century, more or less, or, that, of course, there are some predecessors, or there's a kind of prehistory of satire going actually right back to the Renaissance. But, Or, in fact, the Middle Ages, some people even say. But I'd say that, really, their relevance has always been, has always been strange. I mean, insofar as they've always been reflecting as much as possible on state affairs, they've always been offering interpretations of power, and they've always been contributing to public discussions about mm. the world around them. And I think that... To say that they have reduced sort of relevance now, I know what you mean. I've, in a way, I've found that their relevance has come back, particularly with all the digital stuff, because okay. their stuff is circulating so quickly mm. and the visual stuff works so well on these apps that actually, um, I think they have found their place again a little bit, actually. I mean, the mm. fact that the London magazine has a cartoonist is itself, I think, quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. It's, I think it shows that there is, there is some there is some real relevance here about what they're saying.
0: So even if it will always, by definition, be an outsider art form, yes. it, it, its relevance is no more or less, or if it, even more now than it. Than yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah. it's always been paradoxical insofar as it's always been outsiders writing as if they're right at the inside of the society in which they're in which they're writing. Mm. I think that's always been part of it.
1: I think because you have that creative licence to exaggerate and obviously satirise as yeah. well, you, yeah. you can be cheeky, you can be playful with it in a way that that's it. Um, objective forms of, of writing just can't in the same way. And as you said earlier, yeah. when it comes to where certain presses are are making their writers toe the line as well, yes, it's, it's with Gary Lineker earlier this year, with the kind of backlash he got from the BBC, it's okay. becoming very... Quite frightening with with regards to free speech in in the press and right. not to not to use that kind of buzz buzzword mm. as it were. But but it's a it's a big discussion at the moment. It is it? this kind of veil. I think a lot of people use to be outrageous, but when it comes to actually standing up for <laughs> injustices or talking about things that are going on in the country with yeah. regards to our political leaders, it feels like there's a certain limit and a line that has to be towed. And I like that cartoons can push that boundary.
2: I think the cartoonists have always occupied an incredibly, what should we say, kind of poorly defined place in the public discussion. I mean, they're quite amphibious, aren't they? And famously, it's very difficult to, you know, unless it's really just a kind of ideological cartoonist, it's famously very difficult to actually guess at what the cartoonists' personal political convictions are. Mm. I mean, famously, they, they live in this world of... Almost sort of hoax making a lot of the time. I mean, they're just sending out kind of provocative signals in every direction. And then, you know, they, you're right. They they claim to reserve a special place for themselves of, of total license to say what they want. You're, you're right. They do. Mm. They have often played that role in society. It's not just, certainly not just me.
0: So you're kind of anti ideological in that sense?
2: <laughs> I, I mean, I'm. What? A, oh my God! What am I? I mean, I'm just trying to make these bloody cartoons. I get them in without me sending you
0: four emails or whatever. Yeah,
2: yeah. Without the infrastructure of the London magazine <laughs> closing around me to try and get me to do something, I think it's. I think that the cartoonists really do have to try and articulate what they think is true. You know, they they really mm. do have to describe things as they see it. And if a public magazine or a newspaper or whatever picks it up, that's great. And if they don't, then that's all right as well. I think that a lot of cartoonists just really they're just reacting to. The world around them in ways that make sense to them i think Mm. that's really at the core of it to be quite honest with you
0: so you then worried about causing offense about your ideological position being misinterpreted do those those things cross your mind but you say you never apologize as a matter of principle (laughs) you know if you were to be confronted by rishi sunak would you feel would you feel compelled to apologize i hope not but
2: no absolutely not yeah no absolutely not. i think um oh god and the thing about Pushing boundaries and apology. I mean, I think most cartoonists really think the same thing, which is as long as I keep my job, I don't really care. Yeah, (laughs) I think as long as I'm not just sort of chucked, it's fine. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's different. It depends who you target, doesn't it? I mean, if you're targeting people who are in public office, who are working in the political world, prime minister or not, they have on some level signed themselves up to be interpreted and critiqued. Whether that's coming from the cartoonists or not, it's for the birds. I mean, the journalists are doing the same thing. You know, you're punching
0: it, up or whatever the phrase yeah, would be, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. I think I, I think that the ones, you know, I think just really victimizing people is really is really going too far. Sometimes it depends who it is. Sometimes it is.
0: Or well, for example, in a, a recent cartoon for the London Magazine, Kim Jong Un and Putin were kind of <laughs> displayed with like tiny, tiny penises, sorry right? About that. No, no, I, I, that was probably one of my favorite. Cartoons in the shower together, sorry, in the shower we together. We
2: remind the listeners that they're in the shower, rubbing together.
0: each other's backs, right? The back scratches. That's the, right. The, yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, I don't think anyone in the UK would take particular offence to that, but there must be have been instances where huge offence was taken to a yeah. cartoon of yours. And have you got any examples of when that happened? And
2: there's always someone that's offended. I mean, always, literally, yeah. always. There is no such thing as a cartoon that doesn't offend someone somewhere along the line. I think that for the audience of this magazine, drawing, you know, reflecting on sort of geopolitical uh, developments, issues, and crises, I would say is actually. Not controversial to be quite honest with you
0: mm. I mean saying being anti Putin is hardly the hottest take of uh, the century yeah yeah it's not that original <laughs> yeah. to be honest.
2: I think it's
1: quite in vogue at the moment yeah
2: to, but to be quite honest with you, I mean I look back on all the times I've reflected on the war um and on those you know these people that come up over and over again and actually I'm quite happy with the cartoons that came out in the magazine because for me it looks like a sort of um i you know I've drawn these people several times for you mm. actually it was a bit it became a bit of a series actually. And actually, I look back and think this is quite... I would like to think it's quite an interesting sort of journalistic record of the development of the, of yeah. the war. And actually, you know, if and when this is this is sorted out and when there's some kind of peace settlement, I, I will be able to look back on these cartoons, which may be, what, 10, 15, who, who knows how long it goes on for. Mm. And I just think, well, this was a, a sort of record for myself of what was going on. Like a historical artifact. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Well, well, yeah, I mean, not to say that myself is so good as a historical artifact. Okay, okay, yeah. It's just that, for, you know, it's a record for the magazine and for me and for the readers of the magazine to show what was happening at that time and Mm. insofar as journalism is capable of sort of recording events as well as reflecting on them then i'm happy to have played that role to be honest
0: so putin in the shower may be coming back at some point (laughs) he might be coming back. okay that's good to hear readers will be delighted yeah
1: (laughs) well not to not to humble brag ourselves but we get a couple of emails because we've got original works by Ted Hughes and things from, from GCSE syllabus asking if they can use us. Do you, really? Yeah, yeah. That's
2: good. Is interested in your archive, essentially?
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, and you now form part of that archive, as there I said, probably one of the, the most regular contributors to the magazine's history. So, we're saying, about, saying oh. about
1: Punch Early, you could one day be the, <laughs> the artefacts that, that British school children study.
2: Yeah, and all these kids saying things like, why has he got a small Willie?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you were very tame with, with David Cameron. Um, yeah,
2: you think so, really. I was less tame elsewhere. So, for you, I was probably quite tame, actually. But the stuff that I've been drawing about Cameron recently has been really quite horrible.
1: Where will we be able to find that? It'll
2: be coming out in various places, but the next one for you might include a little David Cameron miniaturised and a little House of Lords robe that's too (laughs) big for him.
1: Okay. It'll appear at
2: some point. But you thought I was too kind on Cameron, really? On Lord Chipping Norton, you thought I was too. You thought, you thought I was too kind. Too
0: kind.
1: Well, I feel like there's it's like cool an
0: editorial meeting in yeah. the pocket. I like it. I, go
1: I feel like there's some quite low-hanging fruit you can always return yeah. to with with David Cameron. Some very Black Mirror-esque.
0: Every time. Things. Well, yeah, there's a, yeah, but they make it too easy. Do you ever find that? I mean, I know that's people say like, "Oh, the death of satire," when you know, life is but it's like honestly, when, as you say, the the Black Mirror-esque David Cameron thing, you know, the the pig's head, etc. This stuff. Yeah, it's like yeah. that's so. It's like as low as you say. It's low. Hanging fruit. It's I a wonder. bit, isn't it? it yeah, it's a bit.
2: It's a bit. Mm. I think. I, th- I think that some of them do reduce themselves to characteristics, often for the purposes of promoting themselves. Yeah. actually. So to be honest with you, if you can just pick up on that and sort of play it back to them in some derisive form, well, that's that's their problem. Mm. That's that's yeah. they've set themselves up for that.
1: Just on the flip side, I find this very interesting to talk about. Did you see the Theresa May portrait, the official portrait of her? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? I thought it. I thought it was stunning. I which. I can't believe I'm saying, but she looks well. the The artist's interpretation it's made her look so good, and it's the kind of power of art as this subversive thing. Yes, where now, you know, there's this kind of canonical artwork affiliated with quite a short term PM in the grand scheme of things. Yes, but it's it's that power of art to translate a message and kind of give her a certain credibility that she certainly didn't have her in her run as PM. That's
2: interesting, isn't it? Well, let me take this back to Hogarth for a second. So Hogarth obviously is thought of as the earliest sort of graphic satirist. Mm. I mean, he's, re- he's really actually a sort of, a, a sort of I don't know, what you, a, a, a sort of visual journalist, actually, Hogarth. And actually a lot of his commissioned work is to do serious, quite flattering portraits of people. In other words, for Hogarth, the Hogarth catalogue, is a record of quite serious commissioned work as well as these satires. So I think that the arts of sort of portrayal, which is what you're talking about in terms of this portrait, have always gone together. And satire has always been essentially a form of portrait painting. The satirist's natural home is the National Portrait Gallery, Mm -hmm. not the National Gallery. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think that what you're describing about that portrait of Theresa May is really interesting, isn't it? Because the serious portrait painter and the caricaturist are just engaging with different kinds of truth They're drawing out different truths about someone, whatever that might be or however that might be expressed. And I think that actually a lot of these, you know, portraits are offering a story as much as the caricaturist is offering a story, to be quite honest. I think it's interesting that that portrait of Theresa May emerged at a time where people are well certainly certainly tories are nostalgic for a time when they seem mm. to have sensible mm. government and i think it's interesting that that portrait has emerged in the way that it has at the time that it has
1: it's quite interesting seeing the comparing that to all the posters i see of napoleon on the tube because she's got her jacket <laughs> japed around her her arm tucked into it she's clutching yeah. some maize flowers as well <laughs> mm. there's so many sort of little details in that but it's something very napoleonic about that and i think there's mm. There's almost something satirical in drawing comparisons there between Theresa May and Napoleon. Well, I think yeah.
2: she'll be delighted to be known that she's yeah. being compared to Napoleon.
0: Well, she's that. been on a bit of a kind of PR, you know, rejuvenation tour. She went on The Rest is Politics. and She did, yeah. yeah and yeah. Rory Stewart, who was obviously, you know, the kind of the the cool Tory, if we can call him that, <laughs> it talks about Theresa May being his, you know, his favourite, uh, you know, one of his favourite politicians. And it's... yeah and it, it makes me very suspicious when when you know only 5 years after the fact we're starting to look back fondly upon I know. some of these people. Well but... I
2: think that the Tories know that they're about to face quite a long wilderness period and <laughs> they don't know how many elections it will last for. So what they're doing is they're trying to curate them their sort of Brexit legacy mm. so that it can be reengaged with in a few years time when they face another election I think. That's so I think that trying to reframe Theresa May as the what should we say, the successful prime minister of that bunch. Yeah. They're trying very hard to do that because they're going to... Even gonna... though she faced the vote of no confidence No, no, twice, no. Or... Oh, yeah. no, no. It involves all kinds of yeah. obfuscations. Mm. But I, I,
0: from, 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 mm.
2: as far as I can see, they're trying very hard to curate the the, the, the image they can re-engage with in a few years' time.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Um, you talked earlier about satire being, you know, everything being one of the same, you know, whether that's film, comedy, writing, literature, yeah, yeah. drawing. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously a kind of very mainstream form of satire, the kind of Radio 4 news quiz, or have I got news for you, private eye kind of satire. Yeah. And then there's a kind of emerging, hist- like a trend in cinema, the kind of Reuben Osland or Emerald Fennell or whoever, who are doing this mm-hmm. type of satire, mm-hmm. I think often feels very lame and, <laughs> and kind of half-arsed and really safe. Yeah. And really not uh, actually kind of yeah. eviscerating the, its subjects in the way that they think they are. Yes. Um. So for you with someone with a knowledge of of the subject, where is the most biting satire happening right now? Where is it coming from, both in form and uh, you know, in it's, its authors?
2: Yeah, I think that you know, sorry, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna give a bit of a set speech here. So I think that Please, the yeah. the origins really of satire, as we understand it in our contemporary society, lie in the post war years. That's when the satirists that are some of them still alive, like Scarf, really emerged, and where things like Private Eye started to be. Uh, created. And what they were all satirising was what they referred to repeatedly as something called the establishment, which are the long Tory governments that essentially repair Britain after the war. Now, there was even a satirical nightclub called the establishment. All right, (laughs) So so that whole vocabulary of something called the establishment worked for a very long time. And the satire that emerged under the so-called establishment governments of the 20th century, which went right up to the Blair years, really was very aggressive. I mean, it was very licentious. It's horrid. I mean, if you look at scarf and Roast and all the rest of them, it's scatological, it's obscene, some of it's pornographic. It's incredibly aggressive. And what's happened is that those guys have kept up their craft of obscenity, if that's the right way of putting Mm. it, and they are still composing very, 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 I think, incisive, aggressive, but also reflective satire for these newspapers. But that whole vocabulary of the establishment has become retrograde. We, yeah. don't have a re- we don't have something called an establishment now. The Tories can barely establish themselves at the moment. We don't have an establishment. And what's not coming into the sort of generational space is our generation with our own kind of satire. That hasn't happened yet. Mm. A version of this is happening with some people that are investing completely in digital. So all of their satires are all done on iPads and all the rest of it. And I'm quite compelled by that. I think some of that's quite interesting mm. and is doing you know, important stuff. But so far, we have not had a big reset that has got us out of this vocabulary of attacking the establishment. We're going to need something else. We're going to need something that's more reflective about the results of the economic crash, the problems with Brexit and our insularity and isolationism in relation to Europe. It's going to have to be more geopolitical. And this vocabulary of the establishment is just going to have to change. They're going to, We're going to have to remake it as something else, us Lord.
0: Are there historical precedents for these things taking time?
2: There are many, and there, and you know, every generation is essentially remaking satire on its own terms, and you know, according to the political conditions which have been put in place. I mean, it's as I say, it's a reactive art form; it is reacting to the circumstances around it. So, I would say that we're yet to see what what satire will look like after the generation that thought that they were attacking the establishment. Mm. We're yet to see that.
0: So, do you think that is the kind of if you were to diagnose what is so kind of? feeble about a lot of the satire that's happening right now. Right, and okay. I mean I I'm kind of trying to incite you to insult Ruben Osland and Emily because I find <laughs> them really unbearable. But like <laughs> it, is that what it is? They're attacking something that is no longer even a thing.
2: I think that we at the moment we don't really have clear models of what satire will look like for the digital age at the moment we've got the establishment people who are still getting on with their business they've kept up their craft and i find them very relatable and very interesting but that vocabulary is starting to wear thin it doesn't actually reflect the with the world around it in the way that it once did and that's the nature of satire of course it's very transient ephemeral literature and i just think that i could sit here and and poke fun at these people but to be honest with you i have respect for the people that are trying okay fair enough um actually and i would say that the fact that no one has yet forced a big software update in the way that satire is relating to the world around it that's something that our generation's going to have to work out for itself i would say sorry is that an evasion of what you are not
0: at all i think that's fascinating and it's kind of it's all, it's reassured <laughs> me to know that you know my thought that there is this kind of thing that's happening that's been the same as it was for the past 40 years and yeah. maybe as you say it's re- it's uh, comforting but it's it, I, you, you you watch or listen or read it and you just think mm. yeah that's yeah that's not making my you know yeah that's not really exciting me
1: i might be controversial here but i feel like with regards to film it's being done better in the u.s like i watched um i rewatched knives out with my my housemates and it's really kind of um Mm. indicative of that era of trump u.s politics and how it spills out into the kind of domestic space as well shaping people's opinions and kind of day-to-day interactions yeah and um like you say with I feel like everyone's talking about Saltburn but it's it just doesn't feel indicative of any kind of particular historical precedent mm. and we don't have anything quite like that in the UK or as up to date
0: It's because as I think you've and I'm I'm giving you a platform here because I think you've written a piece about this Katie but it's because all the people who are trying to make satire like Saltburn is a perfect example of this so uh, you know you can't make a satire of the rich and then be exactly the thing that you're trying to satirise and not having any self-awareness about that fact, right?
1: Yeah, yeah I think it's <laughs> because there's so much history of kind of gentry and, and um, private education when it comes to the people who are given platforms to make these things at a kind of mass scale. Yeah, um, and, and will
0: for now there's not an outsider in the way that a cartoonist might, so you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think the, as you say, kind of that being on the margins really lends itself well, well to their craft.
2: Absolutely, I mean you'll find that most cartoonists are kind of um, slightly boring, reflective, bookish people who are sat there very quietly, kind of umming and ahhing about state affairs. I mean, that's true of David Lowe, who I think is, you know, sadly more relevant than ever, actually. I mean, David Lowe was famously quite a boring man. You know, it's all cups of tea at the right time of day and getting his papers in order and all this. He lives a very kind of prolish suburban life. But actually what David Lowe was saying about that that age of the great dictators was obviously very frightening and very relevant now. So yeah. I think that the, you know, for me, the best the best satirists that are that are drawing at the moment, I'll, I'll keep it about the visual stuff. Yeah. I mean the three great cartoons for me at the moment, me personally, are are Martin Rosen and Morton Morland at the Times, who I think is just so gifted in terms of the actual caricature of individuals. I mean he's just an extremely talented man. And Peter Brooks, who's been there forever. Um and these guys are so they are so good, but what they're good at is describing the way our society has become so deeply estranged from itself. And they have done the software update on society. Mm. They are not harping on about something called the establishment. They are really doing stuff right up to the minute. Um, and they are providing something that, that, that we, we're yet to, I'd say. I'd say, Sorry, that's, that's a bit of a... I don't mean it to be quite so damning or bleak as an outlook, but I, <laughs> I just think our generation hasn't worked itself out yet what yeah. it wants to say about the new conditions we find ourselves mm. in so far.
1: Brilliant. So this is the section where we normally have a literary dilemma, although today it's more of an artistic a dilemma? Dilemma, yeah. yeah. Well, it's more so for people kind of reaching in, uh, seeking inspiration or guidance, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so you're welcome to reply to our call-outs when we put them out or <laughs> uh, our Instagram stories on Twitter slash X. Yeah. Or just drop us an email if you have a question at any point in time. But someone submitted one. They're an aspiring cartoonist. They want to know about how to hone their craft and how you begin to submit in the first place. Okay. There were there were mentioned ambitions of the New Yorker one day. which, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dream big.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, is this person? Do you know who this person is?
0: They were sent through our Instagram, so yeah. I know. Not really. Sent, sent through Instagram. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool.
2: Uh, I mean, I'm the first thing to say is I'm not in any position to give people advice at all because I'm myself still working out what my actual style looks like and mm. still pitching it to various places and I'm I'm in that I'm in that mire with them, if you say. <laughs> right. So I can only talk as an equal. I can't okay. talk to them with someone who's got some great I can't sit on a pedestal and tell them what to do. What I would say in my experience, you have to do it for yourself because no one is ever going to reward you for it. And if you do that if they do, that's nothing short of a miracle. I would say that you just have to keep going and going and going and accept the fact that 95% of the characters you, characters you draw just won't look like the person you're trying to draw at all. And I think you just have to be willing to suffer. You know how artists are all supposed to yeah. suffer? Yeah, you have to You have to suffer.
0: What's, what's that quote? It's like, I don't suffer for my art. I just suffer. I yeah. just suffer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like that. And yeah. you have to spend all your money on all of the resources, like the paper and the ink and stuff, mm all to be wasted on like shit drawings of people that make no sense whatsoever you just have to slog it out essentially mm. and I would say to this person who wants to be in the New Yorker I mean I have never been in the New Yorker and probably never will be what I would say is just send it to as many people as possible mm. and live with the embarrassment of when they say absolutely never <laughs> just, just just, just, live with the perpetual feeling of humiliation
1: I, I don't think we should frame it that way Re- rejection <laughs> is redirection
2: yeah no it's, it's an it,
1: incentive to keep going a bruise,
2: not a scar rejection absolutely yes. no i think this person whoever this person is they've just got to be really they've just got to be really industrious and just as much as they can imitate the really brilliant people look Some, to the legends look to the I mean, these guys are so impressive these guys you know the people that do the really great characters they are so so technically gifted so i would say just keep copying and copying and copying work out what suits you And then try and see if someone will publish it. And eventually they will. Eventually. Absolutely. Sorry, that's a nicer way of. Yeah. And also, it's true. I mean, you know, a lot of people are drawing cartoons and never get published. The fact that I'm published here is nothing short of a miracle. I'm very happy about it. But this person will be published too eventually, it will happen. You just, have to, you just have to keep trying and trying and I'd say to be honest with you I mean, accepting the fact that they're not always going to be brilliant is important but so is trying to make them brilliant so constantly studying real images of the people you're trying to caricature and playing with their facial features and all the rest of it and just mm. feeling the freedom of that and just saying well look no one's going to see these rubbish drafts I may as well have a go what happens if their ears are the size of the whole page and their head is absolutely tiny or whatever they'll just have to keep playing around with that stuff good luck to this person it's
0: not easy the more, the more you talk about cartoons, it's the more always, it feels like being a poet in the same kind of outsider <laughs> status, like never being published, yes. working silently on your craft. Yes, it's and, that. And that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, it's like they say, I mean, most people just see the images, but what they don't see are all the hours kind of pacing around in circles going, I'm so terrible, I've got no idea what I'm doing at all, and just mm. all trying to get it together. I think that's, you know, I think they should respect the, yeah, the suffering.
0: <laughs> I think that's important. Yeah, nice.
2: That, but you're right, that's true for anyone doing anything creative, isn't yeah.
0: it? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a a solitary process most of the time. No
2: one wakes up and writes proof rock. That doesn't happen. You're going to have to, you're going to have to chisel it out and you're going to have to see what works for different audiences. People, people always want different things as well. That's one Mm. thing I've learned. People, some people want it to be more horrible. In my case, some people want it to be less horrible. Some people want it to be in colour. Some people want it in black and white. The the demands are potentially endless. So I think you have to just chisel out what you believe in. And if someone takes it, that's great. And if you're chiselling out something that you don't believe in, you have to be willing to live with that. Mm. And that's a whole different story, if you ask me.
0: Okay. Yeah. As a as a final question, yeah. uh, we like to ask our guests what they've been enjoying recently. So whether that's a book, a, a film, a play, a, a cartoon indeed, oh, okay. or uh, a collection of poetry, whatever. What kind of creative thing have you been returning to a lot recently?
2: I've been looking over... Um, i 've been looking over the David Lowe stuff a lot yeah. so so not just for the, the book I'm publishing on satire but but just because it seems more relevant than ever so it 's not a cheery story, which is that i 've just been looking over all of the caricatures of the of the dictators of the Second mm-hmm. World War and um admiring the sheer artistry of it, how brilliant it was, how true it was, um, and sadly how how relevant it is again so uh, it 's a sorry it 's a bit of a somber note to end on about <laughs> my creative interest, but i'm i 'm looking over a lot of David Lowe at the moment.
0: And would you like to, having just mentioned it, you have a free plug of your of your book for this <laughs> forthcoming, I believe, on Princeton, Princeton, Princeton University. Princeton UP. Okay. And it's
2: going to be very cheap and available in fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> and if I can time it to come out at Christmas, even better.
0: We'll we'll, we'll clip this up and put it all over our social media. <laughs> that's, there you go. No, that's great. That's good. Um, no,
2: the book will be out eventually, this big okay. history of satire.
0: Great. Um, you can find us at London Magazine on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also subscribe to the magazine for just £35 a year and uh, and get to see six cartoons of of Dan's every year, and that's only £35. You can also, uh, if you want, order any back issues featuring Putin and uh, and Kim Jong-un as well, or David Cameron or whoever else. And Richie Sunak, indeed, which I believe was, when was that? Was well, he that... didn't
2: bloody subscribe, did he? Oh, he
0: certainly didn't. Was that June, no. July, was that? How yeah, was it? it was some... in the summer. It was some time in the summer. Well, he um... didn't
2: subscribe, did he? He didn't write me a letter saying thanks for that. <laughs>
0: Maybe he'll buy your book with with Princeton UP.
2: How incredibly ungracious of him not to write to me personally and say that
0: it was a very good cartoon. Well
1: as I said, I think he probably just went home and had a cry about <laughs> it. He was he was that deeply moved by it. I see. He really I thought see. about what he was doing.
0: Mm, maybe. Yeah, there's a there's kind of there's pre and post Rishi seeing Dan's cartoon. <laughs> Could you po- send me that picture? Um yeah, I'll send you it. I'll Could send you send me, me yeah, that we'll send you it? It's, I can't believe that happened mm, and he yeah. didn't write to me.
2: Bastard! He's on, ungracious. Prime Minister's disgraceful.
0: On that note, uh, Rishi, God. the ungracious bastard of a, of a <laughs> prime minister. Uh, Katie, Dan, thank you so much. Thanks uh, very much. And uh, see you guys soon. Thank you.